This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. Students around the Commonwealth and the country are headed back to school. So this felt like the right time to sit down with ACLU PA senior policy advocate Harold Jordan. Harold has had a long and distinguished career advocating for students' civil rights. In this conversation, we talk about how schools are reacting after the shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida in February. Students have always joked that school is prison, but after an event like Parkland, adults have an immediate reaction to turn schools into small fortresses. Harold explains why that does more harm to students than good. We also talk about insights he received from a meeting this year of school administrators and some good news for the littlest ones at the school district of Philadelphia. This is part one of a two episode back to school theme for the pod. Here we go. Harold, thanks for taking the time to talk about the latest issues around schools and civil rights. I want to get right into what has been front of mind for six months since the uh, shooting in Parkland in Florida. Uh, And that's what's going on with school security and how school administrators are responding after that tragic shooting. Uh, You know, anytime there's a big event like this, there's a knee-jerk reaction to lock down schools. Some people are referring to it as hardening schools. Keeping in mind that there are 500 districts in Pennsylvania, what trends are you seeing uh, as administrators respond in the six months since that event? Well, I think the responses are a mixed bag. Uh, All school districts feel some pressure to do something, even if it means simply reviewing existing protocols when there's an emergency or a bomb threat, uh, reviewing their... Uh, responses from law enforcement, fire departments, things like that, you will see, I I doubt that there's any school district in the state that has not done that level of work. Um, The other thing to understand is that school districts are also political institutions and that superintendent jobs are political jobs in the sense that uh, many of them tell me that their ability to remain in those jobs and be effective in those jobs is dependent on how the public views how they're doing and what they're doing. And that has implications for how school safety issues are dealt with. So districts sometimes take measures that they know don't mean anything in real terms and in terms of making schools safe, safer. Um, and so there's, there's a certain type of pressure to be seen as doing something, not just to review protocol to be seen as doing something more. And I think if the past school shootings have have taught us anything, it's that pressure to be seen as doing something that often leads to bad policy. Um, no superintendent is going to get up and say the obvious, what everybody knows, and that is that there's no foolproof way of preventing shootings uh, and that there's no one type of person who is a shooter. Uh, however, uh, many of them want to be seen as doing something that, that is seen by the public, in their estimation at least, is seen by the public as promoting school safety. That's when you get to proposals for hardening schools. Now, I think that 
some school leaders do see the hardening of schools as, as making schools safe. The, the problem, of course, is uh, what do you mean by safety? The kinds of the point that I've been making to uh, administrators, school district superintendents, and other administrators and state officials is that, by analogy here, the kind of thing that you would do to keep yourself safe at home depends on whether you're talking about somebody breaking in, or you're talking about somebody stealing your identity. Mm-hmm. But those are both sort of personal safety issues. Mm-hmm. So taking that analogy to schools. I, I often tell school leaders that the kinds of things that you would do if you want to keep an unauthorized person out of a building, you know, would be different from the kind of thing that you would do if what you're trying to do is cut down on bullying and incidents of fighting. Those are, but they're both kind of safety issues. Um, but when you get to a, a highly visible shooting in the aftermath of that, all of those different forms of safety become conflated with the preventing school shootings, stopping school shootings, everything else, and you have a series of measures that don't necessarily respond to the threats that schools actually face mm-hmm. in particular situations. And that's when you get to the hardening of schools. And oftentimes when people are talking about the hardening of schools, they're sometimes talking about um, adding human resources, typically in school resource officers, police officers in the building. Sometimes they might be talking about infrastructure changes. Um, can you explain why that increased physical security is problematic? The average person might have a gut reaction that that sounds like a good idea. I'm wondering if you can explain um, how the harm outweighs the benefit. So the latest estimate is that in the wake of the um, Parkland shooting, states have allocated uh, about approximately $900 million to school safety. Um, and from our best estimate, and this is what's appeared in the sort of investigative media, uh, the bulk of that, the majority of that has been for sort of physical safety, uh, physical facility changes to buildings, uh, and then I guess the second largest would be increase in school police. Uh, what loses in, in the equation here is having more support services, more counselors, more social workers, uh, more intervention workers, and people who can you know, get to know young people, especially young people who might uh, be troubled in some way or upset or angry. Now, to be clear, when I say young people, when I refer to young people who are troubled or upset or angry, very few of these people are potential school shooters, you know, to, to be clear about that. But the weight of the funding has been on either building changes, building security, technology, surveillance, followed by an increase in the number of armed police officers in of, of one sort or another, whether a school district employee or contracting with outside agency, outside police agency. Um, very little has, uh, the, the, what suffers there is, is the person power. Um, there's a fellow named Richard Trump, who is the head, uh, no, as far as I know, no relation to our president. He's a longtime head of, a, I, think, I think it's an organization called the National School Safety Center. He's been doing this for decades. And he's looked at the, the issues of how schools respond to emergencies. He's expressed a similar concern, and in his expert view, this is a guy who's testified on on behalf of schools about a variety of incidents, whether it's child abduction, sexual assault, or mass shootings. His concern is that, in his estimation of of past emergencies, that the the, the things that needed changes were, were 
failures in people and procedures and systems, not hardwares or products. Um, and that, that's directly what he has stated to the media recently. And I think that's correct. Uh, you need to make sure that you have more people in schools who are working directly with young people in a supportive way, uh, that there's early intervention. Uh, that's the kind of thing that improves school climate generally to make schools more peaceful places. I want to zero in a little bit on the uh, concept of having more police officers in school. I know a lot of your work has really focused on that, what the data shows, um, what are best practices. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's why having more police in schools is so problematic for kids? It, it starts with the fact that it increases the likelihood of being arrested at school. So when we express our concerns about police in schools, I, I think it's important to step back and, and understand that what has changed in the last 20 years is there's been uh, an explosion in the number of districts that have officers full-time in schools where the school is their beat. It's not that they are just, you know, now when I was a, a, a young person, I'm high school class of 1972, uh, you saw police officers on the corner at the beginning of the school day, the end of the school day. If they were ever in schools, it was response to a fight where there was an injury. Uh, and that was a rare occurrence in most schools. I went to the second largest high school in the state of Georgia, so we with thousands of students. We rarely saw police officers uh, in schools, uh, but we did see them on the corner. That, and that is the traditional model of policing. Uh, it has varied from place to place over time. Um, so what you're seeing now is a combination of a lot more police officers in school full time, which places them in contact with students around a range of things for cell phone violations and things of that sort. And districts that, while they don't have resident police officers, just call the police all the time on certain students or certain types of students. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is, when you look at the arrest data in Pennsylvania, you see that it's actually driven by both. A larger number of school districts, roughly probably 170 or so of our 500 districts, 170, 175 of our 500 districts have full-time police officers, at least in some of their schools. And then there are other school districts. Uh, there are some other school districts that don't have police in schools full-time, but where police are called all the time around a range of things that are that, that many uh, wise people working in schools would not consider to be police matters. Um, I think it matters because when you have police in schools, it's whether resident full time or call in all the time, it definitely drives up student arrest. I mean, Pennsylvania, through most of the last eight or 10 years, depending on which year you're, you're, you're talking about, has had the highest student arrest rates in the country. And the most recent data shows that it's also heavily skewed. The highest black student arrest rate, highest, we may have the highest or second highest Latino student rate. And we're one of the top states in the country uh, in, in terms of arrests of students with disabilities. The, that issue of schools constantly calling the police is a good segue into the, something I wanted to ask you about, which is a meeting that you convened uh, earlier in the year. This was a meeting in Harrisburg with school administrators and advocates. Uh, and at least one former police officer. Um, and the discussion at that meeting illuminated some real misunderstandings and lack of knowledge that administrators have about police in schools. Tell us about that and what you learned. I think there were two takeaways. Um, and several of us had a sort of a post uh, 
School Policing Summit uh, debriefing where we talked about, we looked at the notes and we talked about what we learned. And they basically fell into two categories. One is that even people who run districts, and I mean superintendents, assistant superintendents, department heads, and board members do not understand the full collateral consequences of police contact. They don't understand the implications of arrest in terms of how it affects everything else in your life, even after it is resolved. And they don't understand the implications of uh, what are called summary citations. Now, this is a situation in which a young person is not arrested. However, they receive a ticket from a police officer which basically compels that person to appear in adult, not juvenile court, where they might be represented by a juvenile defender, but they're brought before a magistrate judge in adult open court. Yeah. These are things from which kids are not even arrested. This happens in situations where, even situations where police officers were never even called to be involved in an incident. They might review a record, what we're seeing in some districts, they might review a record and say, oh, that's harassment oh, that's disorderly conduct, and then they all file charges against these kids. This creates a record, which does not expunge itself. And so what we're finding, and we're hearing this from some judges now, that um, kids apply to go to the military, apply for jobs, and then this comes up. There's this thing on their record, and they're asked, well, why were you, uh, or they'll go to the institution or go to the courts and ask, why is this on this kid's record? So, you know, this is a situation in which kids are not even arrested. And in some cases, a police officer was never even called to be involved in an incident. This is really an, an unknown, not a widely known problem, but it is, a, it is a, a major practice in many school districts in this state. And I'm not talking about just tiny ones, but mid-sized ones, larger ones, where kids get these tickets and they, they have these summary citations. And so... The, the first takeaway from our school policing summit was that the folks who run schools um, and who make decisions about schools do not understand the collateral consequences of student contact with police. The second thing that we learned is that, and, and this may be a little delicate for some, is that um, superintendents have a thin understanding of the arrangements that they have with local law enforcement. So by Pennsylvania law, every school district must have a memorandum of understanding that is a written agreement with local law enforcement. Whether law enforcement is in that school full time or not, they must have one. And that, you know, spells out things like, you know, which for which types of incidents you must call the police. That's just a restatement of Pennsylvania law. Um, And um, it, it has several other provisions in it as well. Superintendents sign these agreements. Sometimes school boards approve them. Sometimes it's just designated to allow, the superintendent is allowed to, uh, to sign the agreement. But very few of them have a, a concrete understanding of what's actually in them. And the, the power that districts have to insist that, that positive things be placed in those, ones that provide protections to students, you know, ones where, you know, that would prevent things like uh, unlawful interrogations of students. Um, we have one in Philadelphia, for example, that says under no circumstances would a child 10 years or under be arrested. Mm-hmm. Now, state law doesn't say that, 
but there's nothing in state law that says to school officials that you can't add things right. um, to these memoranda of understandings that that place some controls over what it is appropriate for police to do in schools and what, what it's not appropriate for police to do in schools in terms of their contact with young people. And so it was interesting to, to see you know, superintendents and talk to superintendents who signed these things but did not completely understand what was in them. So what we did in our session at the ACLU is we took the model MOU recommended by the State Board of Education and we annotated it. We said, this is what this means. This is how it relates to the law. This is what you're required to do. And here are examples of things that some things that districts have added to it, which make it a better MOU. A lot of work has been done uh, in, with the city, school district of Philadelphia to cement civil rights protections for students. There's actually a pretty active student group, in fact, in Philadelphia. Um, we're about to ramp up a campaign to strengthen those civil rights protections for students in Allegheny County. What's that project about? So um, in Philadelphia, we've worked on, just to review, several issues. That is, cutting back the suspension rates of young children, which are like incredible for kids and thousands of kids in first and kindergarten, first and second grades have been suspended from school, mm -hmm. which is, and we've worked for many years to get that changed. We've also um, gotten a, a provision in our school code in, in Philadelphia that said essentially you can't suspend a kid for not being dressed appropriately. That's not the appropriate response. There are other things you can do. You can give them something else to wear. There are other kinds of steps that can be taken, but removing them from school, suspending a kid for that who's not otherwise doing something harmful is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of other issues that we've been able to address over a period of time, but it's a work in progress. The most notable thing is that, that because of a number of, of policy changes, including when police are in, what types of incidents, minor incidents police are involved in, and a pre-arrest diversion program, the arrest rates have come down in Philadelphia. We want to build on this work, build on the work that we did, bringing together uh, superintendents and school district leaders and school board members with our school policing summit to, to reform school policing in Allegheny County, or at least to make an effort to do that over the next two years. So we are just starting a project to take five of the 43 districts in Allegheny County, ones that we regard as hot spots in terms of the level of police contact with students or taser incidents or use of force against students or high arrest rates, um, and try to uh, reform districts, district practices and change the relationship between school districts and law enforcement. The interesting thing about the project um, is that our strategy is to sort of get at the issue from both ends. So there's a piece of work that we're going to be doing with people at the leadership level um, in, in the way that, you know, modeled on our work, our summit on school policing, but in an ongoing way over the next two years. We're going to work with them so that they have a better understanding of collateral consequences. What are alternative practices? What are best practices? Um, how can you reduce unnecessary student arrests and things like that? So we're going to work with them. One of the members of our team is a retired superintendent who's working with the ACLU on this project to reach out to her peers at that level of, you know, someone who's worked over a 30-year period of time in schools as a psychologist, school psychologist, student services director, and then ultimately a, a uh, superintendent. Then on the other 
from the other end, we're going to work with folks in communities who have concerns about what's happening with their young people in schools in relation to school policing. Now, you know, we don't expect these two groups of people to always be warm and fuzzy. They may want different things, but we're going to work with both to work on sort of to understand what's happening um, to young people in the community, to document that, to work with folks who want to come together and to say, okay, district leaders, you need to change your policies and practices on X, Y, and Z. You know, we're especially concerned about contact between students with disabilities and law enforcement, uh, the sort of the racially skewed policing in schools. Uh, we're really concerned about that, which is, which is a serious, both of those are serious problems in Allegheny County schools. Yeah. So we see this as a potential model for a way to work. And that, you know, you're working in Allegheny County, a lot of, there's been a lot of work in Philadelphia. It's a big state with 500 districts. And so addressing these issues seems like it can be a little overwhelming, but you are serving on a subcommittee right now that is advising the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency on Best Practices in School Safety. Um, and that's rooted in a new school safety law that the legislature passed earlier in the summer. Um, tell us what that work is about. So uh, Pennsylvania, like most other states in the country, uh, passed um, a several laws reforming the school code, the school policies, uh, especially in the aftermath of Parkland. And, you know, there, there's good and bad in the law. There, there, there are things in the law that would provide funding for the hardening of schools, uh, but there are also things in the law that would, that would encourage schools to do other kinds of things and provide other kinds of services to students. And so I am on a committee, one of three committees of, uh, of the, of the Statewide School Safety Committee, which is uh, coordinated by the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. I'm on the one on student behavioral health and school climate. And so what we're trying to do there is to recommend best practices to districts for improvements in those areas. And, you know, this is the committee that is doing the proactive student-centered kind of work, not the hardening of schools work. We're saying, okay, we need more of certain kinds of services in schools. We need a way to respond to emergencies where kids are traumatized by things that they experience in schools and outside of schools. So for example, um, if there is a suicide in schools, this has nothing to do with school shooting. That If there's a suicide in a school, well, or if a kid dies in an accident, that has an impact on everybody else in that school. Yeah. Um, and what kind of services and at what level do we do? And how do we help small districts as well as big districts. So we're looking at issues like that, um, as well as the more traditional kinds of things such as you know threat assessment, but we're looking at student assistant programs. Uh, we're looking at climate surveys. How do we assess what is going on in a school and what the stressors are in a school? And so what our committee has come up with and recommended to the larger group uh, are, are a whole set of questions and standards that one would use in assessing the climate within a school and what the needs of the schools are. But, but our focus is really on the sort of positive, proactive student support services, supporting students and families in such a way that it leads to a better, more peaceful school environment. And at least there's not as much conflict within a school or there's a way to deal with crisis situations. Yeah. Now, these things that I mentioned are not the only crises that occur in schools, but we think that the conversation 
about school safety has gotten really out of whack and out of balance. We've talked about state policy. We've talked about local policy. Uh, of course, the federal government does have some role in education. And it seems like once every month or so, it's there's a new dust-up over something awful the Federal Department of Education and Secretary DeVos have done. Um, we're recording this on August 22nd, and last weekend Politico reported about uh, a series of Title IX claims that have been brought by transgender students who want to use bathrooms based on their gender identity. In May, the secretary caused controversy because she said that local authorities, local school authorities, could decide whether or not to work with immigration authorities. From your perspective, and of course this is a leading question, but I think it's uh, inevitable just to say it this way, how much of a disaster has DeVos's reign at DOE been for civil rights? On a one to ten scale, eight with the possibility of going up to ten. <laughs> um, all right, we're in the seven to ten range, okay, depending on what okay. comes down in the next. No, it's not a deal. There are major policy changes that are being uh, contemplated that have not yet been announced, uh -huh. but we know what some of them are, and they really have an impact on directly on the issue of civil rights. So with the DeVos administration, the easiest critique is to say that people are being hired who don't know anything about public education and public schools, that there are people who are sort of political hacks that have been placed in positions like you see in the Trump administration in general. There is a problem with just folks not being there who are professional educators. Mm -hmm. So that is one problem in that department. I think that the bigger I mean, and, and, and as a piece of that first problem, I would add, you know, like the crazy stuff around um, putting folks who have uh, been running private schools that are not uh, providing the right kind of services to students so that they don't get jobs when they get out of those college. That, that's the college level problem. You know, putting the folks in, it's kind of like what's going on in the EPA. People who are critics of, environmental regulation are being put in charge of the environment. Right. And you have a similar thing when it comes to some of the um, uh, kind of sleazy sort of student loan agencies and things that have been harmful to students. Um, that's a, that, that is the sort of general kind of a political problem in the administration, but that's also reflected in the Department of Education. On the policy level, it's pretty clear that the current leadership and that includes the new, newly confirmed Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights, have a very skewed, narrow, and um, I, I don't, I'm not sure what other words I'm going to add here, view of, of the civil rights of students and of families. And that's extremely problematic. And how that plays out is that the kinds of issues that might have been or allegations that had been made in the past that would have been investigated in previous administrations were not going to be investigated. Uh, they're not looking for systematic uh, problems of practices or patterns of discrimination in a way that you find before. I mean, you know, when, when people complain to the federal government, and it is a function of the Office of Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Education to investigate complaints. That's, that's what the law says they're supposed to be doing. When people complain, it usually starts out as, you know, one or two incidents 
uh, where someone sees something happen or has someone ha something happen, negative happen to them, that they feel is in some way discriminatory. Um, and what has happened is that in the past, when the department has investigated those claims, they have found 10 other people where this has happened, 20 other people that have happened. And they've found situations in which the, um, uh, some of the people who work in schools will say, well, the reasons for that policy is, say, a policy that, that is harmful to kids, under which many kids are suspended from school or disciplined. The, the reason for that policy, the stated reason isn't the real reason, that we don't like you know, the certain kinds of kids. And that's been said privately in meetings. So that is a reflection of discrimination. Uh, and then there are just larger patterns where two kids do the same thing. One kid gets, they call the cop on one kid and another, they don't. Uh, and, and I think all of those kinds of things, as well as, you know, good old-fashioned implicit bias that we talk about often in, in, with police forces in the outside world, uh, in the non-school context, those things are also existing in schools. And so you, you do have a situation where now the federal government is saying, well, we're not going to investigate those sort of systemic-type issues um, we will look at some individual complaints, but we're not going to treat an individual complaint as maybe a reflection of a large... We're not going to do enough investigatory work to see that as a reflection of a larger policy. Um, and most significantly, we, we expect that the administration will rescind some of the important sort of guidance documents uh, that the department has issued. This isn't... No new law has been made here. The civil rights laws, as they were before the, the Trump administration of the same civil rights laws that we have right now, it's just that the current crew does not want to enforce uh, fairly kind of mainstream understandings of what those laws mean. And we expect that there will be a, a pullback of some of the, just the guidances, not a change in the law, but the guidances that explain how the law applies in practice. And I think that's just very harmful. Um, I, I do think that the previous administration made some important strides in educating school districts about best practices, but they also made available money mm -hmm. to actually support reforms. So last policy question, let's end, let's talk about one a po a positive uh, in the policy area and bring it back local, which is back to Philadelphia. Um, earlier this summer, the school district of Philadelphia passed a new policy to prohibit the suspension of first and second graders. And that was actually an expansion of an existing policy um, that covered kindergarten students. Um, you mentioned that a few minutes ago when you were talking about some of the work in Philadelphia. And it is stunning that the district suspended over 2,000 first and second graders in the 2016-17 school year. Tell us about why that was so important to get that done. Well, first thing, I, I just want to be clear that uh, the, the, the push to uh, stop excluding small children from school is actually a nationwide. Mm -hmm. That legislators, legislatures in many states, including red states, mm -hmm. Texas, Indiana, have uh, passed state laws that essentially discourage this. So that we're not... This, this isn't new. We're a little late to the game here. Uh, and that's important to see that this is a nationwide movement that we understand that it's, it's really harmful to children. It's harmful to families and parents. 
Um, and uh, it raises the serious question about whether um, there's appropriate professional development, so you know how to work with kids, or whether there's outright bias. Now, there's research to support the, 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 the notion that there might be some bias. Uh, there's a growing, by, a small but growing body of, of, of research of sort of eye-tracking surveys. Uh, there is one in particular from Yale where these um, educators were told that they're going to see a film, and in that film there will be some kids who exhibit problematic behaviors. They showed the film to educators, and sure enough, the black children were watched more so than the white children, and although none of the children exhibited problematic behaviors. So we know from the psychological research, and we know from some other things, that some of the, some of the biases that tend to um, contribute to excluding kids from school, bigger kids from school, starts early. And so there's a real question about whether there is even, people now talk of the preschool to prison pipeline which, which is a kind of a scary prospect. We don't yeah. know that there is a direct connection there, but we see that at every stage in a child's life, there are exclusionary discipline practices that are harmful. And what we see, even with the smallest kids, is that once a kid is labeled as a bad kid, that label goes with them to the next grade, the next grade. Kids know it, teachers know it. Some of those kids get blamed for incidents in which they were not even at fault because you know they are labeled as the bad kids. And so um, there's been a push to, to, to stop this happening from happening at, at the early stages. Now, all of these laws and school district policies have exceptions for those rare incidents where there's phys serious physical bodily harm. Philadelphia policy does, the new Pittsburgh policy, almost all of the, sta all of the state laws have that exception. But you know what? When you look at the actual numbers, very small number compared to the thousands of kids who are removed from school. So we know that the harm, the psychological harm, the harm to families, the negative relationship between kids and families and schools starts at a young age. And we don't know exactly whether those same kids may end up in prison later, but we see some things happening there that are deeply concerning. So you, this has been your work for a long time. Um, if someone's listening to this and they're really interested in these issues, they want to get involved in some way or they want to take some action, what do you recommend? Well, there are two things. Uh, we run out of the ACLU of Pennsylvania a pretty robust uh, national website called nzerotolerance.org. That is a starting point, and there's an email address in there, stpp at aclupa.org. We're happy to work with people, to connect them with others that want to move on these issues. That is a starting point. Uh, but there's a ton of re resources on there, not just long reports, but there's videos, there's sample handouts. So for example, if you decided that you wanted to take on this issue of eliminating the suspension of young children, you could go on there and you could see the handouts that were used in various districts in Texas, the one-page sample handouts. You will see webinars. Um, and all kinds of PowerPoints that were used in actual campaigns and presentations that were made before for um, school boards. And so that's our way of putting out the resources to people that they can take and run with. Great, well thanks Harold, I really appreciate your time and appreciate your work. Thank you.
thank you to Harold Jordan for taking the time to talk about students' civil rights. Harold oversees the publication of our Students' Rights Handbook. You can find that handbook online at aclupa.org slash your rights. You can also find Harold on Twitter at HaroldJordan underscore PA. And be sure to follow Stop Zero Tolerance at STP Zero Tolerance. That's the numeral zero. STP Zero Tolerance. I'm also on Twitter at Freedom's Friend, as is the ACLU of PA, at ACLUPA. This is part one of our Back to School special. In part two, I talk with Preston Heldebreidel from the Pennsylvania Youth Congress. In that conversation, Preston talks about the challenges that LGBTQ youth face in school, particularly transgender students. That episode will be out soon, so keep your eyes on your notifications for it. We've come to the end of another episode. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.